0: This is the Out of Water Podcast. Thanks for checking out our podcast. I'm the guy behind the controls, Mark Lautenschlager. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find Out of Water on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Let's go to our studio now and our host, Pastor Sam Caston-Smith. Tonight we're actually jumping into the spiritual discipline of generosity and the Bible when Jesus talks about all the different spiritual disciplines whether it's prayer fasting reading scripture all of them he talks more about generosity and what you do with your resources than he does any other thing and and it's not even close. Uh, if you read the Gospel of Luke, he sometimes he almost seems single-minded in the way he talks about parables and the way that you care for the poor and what you do with how you've been blessed. The first truth that you have to wrestle with before you can allow God to come and start uh, negotiating with your heart, you have to realize whose stuff is this? And so truth number one, before we even go down this road, is everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. So here's just, we're going to rifle through some scriptures, but this is just, he beats this into our heads throughout the scripture. So after God has liberated the Israelites, right, he's liberated them out of Egypt, he's liberated them out of slavery, he's about to give them a brand new life where they have freedom, where they can own possessions and have private property and do all these things. But before he gives them the Ten Commandments and the chapter before that, he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then of, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation what is he saying there notice notice what he says there it's not just that god owns the whole earth and everything in it what does he call you you are his treasured what possession so when you come to the negotiating table you're not just saying okay what of mine do you own <laughs> God is saying, I own you. You're mine. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. That's a wild thought, isn't it? Well, if I don't belong to myself, if I'm not my own, I'm God's treasured possession and the whole earth is his. And he doesn't stop there. He just keeps reminding us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it belong to him. Everything under heaven belongs to me, he says. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Now, he's saying this to Moses as they're about to go into the promised land and get this, this is the land. Oh, you're going to inherit the land. And what does God say? Before you get too proud, it's mine. It's mine. You are sojourners. This is not one. That's good news because this is not your ultimate home. This is not your ultimate destination, right? The land is mine. You're merely sojourners. You're merely aliens here. You're just passing through. So don't treat what you get here as your own. So God owns everything. And the other truth is you'll never outgive God ever. Like, you will never, ever reach the level of generosity that God has had toward us. Not only does he give us this creation and allow us to be stewards of it, but can you think of anything that you have that ultimately didn't come from the hand of God? Anything? I mean, we're quick to want to say, well, I earned it. I, I, I earned it. Look at my bank account. I earned what's in there. And God would say, what did you earn it with? With the hands I gave you? With the brain I gave you? With the personality I gave you? With the talents that I gave you? Breathing the air that I gave you? What do you have that ultimately doesn't come from his hand? Nothing. And then, this is the wild part. This God, who is unbelievably generous, sets all of his wealth aside, comes into this world experiences poverty, is born in a feeding trough, in a cave, rejected. There's no room for him. He grows up knowing hunger. He knows homelessness. He knows all of this. Why? He didn't have to do that. He's God. He created gold. And yet he sets it aside. Why? Generosity to you. He forfeits everything so that you can have wealth, so that you can have an inheritance to the infinite degree. You'll never outgive him. Even in heaven, you'll never outgive him. All of the joy, all of the peace, all of the blessings that will pour your way forever are coming graciously from him in heaven forever. Even in heaven, you're not going to outgive him. This is a picture of an ash heap. And so what you see there is poor people. This is in India, and what they would do is they would go to the landfill, and landfills are super volatile. They burn ferociously. And then afterwards, the children would be sent out with bags to come through the landfill, to go through all the ash and look desperately to see if anything was discarded that they could then take for their family. And God comes in Psalm 113 just to give you an idea of his character. This is just wonderful. In Psalm 113, it says, Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high. So it tells you who he is. He's entitled to sit on the throne. He reigns over all things on the throne of heaven, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. That's just kind of fun. He stoops to look on the heavens. (laughs) And he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap and he seats them with princes and the princes of his people. And what I love about this is the desperate, the poor, they go to the ash heap, and what are they looking for? They're looking for stuff that the rest of the world considers utter trash. And this is the God who deserves to sit on the throne of all things, who sits on the throne of all things, who stoops down and lifts those on the ash heap to become princes. That's really good news for us, by the way. This reminds us of Job. Do you remember the story of Job? When he's stricken with with health issues and, and he's got sores all over his body and his family has been taken away from him and he's in utter misery, what does he do? He goes and sits on the ash heap and takes broken pottery shards that he has found and he begins to just cut away at his sores. And so when you read this, like, I can't help but think of Job when he's sitting on the ash heap wondering, where are you, God? Have you forsaken me? I'm, I'm, I, am, I am like this landfill. I am utter trash. And this is the God who comes to the ash heap and lifts those out of it to become princes. The ash heap in the New Testament that would have been outside of Jerusalem, on the southern side you have what's called the Valley of Hinnom. And its, its name was Gehenna. So if you've ever studied Scripture, you, you understand the doctrine of hell. And the Greek, the word that's translated hell again and again and again and again is Gehenna. He's referring to the Valley of Henom. And so on the southern gate of Jerusalem, the very southernmost gate at Jerusalem was called the Dung Gate. Do you know why it was called the Dung Gate? Because that's where you took all of the refuse out of the city. You took the dead corpses, you took dead animals, you took sewage, you took all the discarded garbage, and you took it down into the Valley of Henome, and you just threw it there, and it piled up and piled up. And if you ever go by a landfill, have you ever noticed how they have pipes sticking out of the side of the landfill? Do you know why that is? It's gas. Because as that landfill begins to decompose and compress, it builds up really volatile methane gas inside the landfill. And if it were ever to catch fire without that ventilation, it would be explosive and ferocious. And so when Jesus is referring to Gehenna, he's referring to the Valley of Henom, and what would happen in the Valley of Henom is the trash pile would build up, and the stench of death and rotting and decay and everything else would be so nasty, and you'd go out there and you'd see corpses, criminals, and every once in a while the stench would get so bad. What's the only way you could get rid of the stench? You'd light a match or whatever they had back then, <laughs> rub some stones together or sticks, and they would go out there and they would set fire to Gehenna. And it would burn wildly. The methane pockets would catch and it would go whoo! And it would burn for days and days and days, just consuming everything in it. And so when Jesus is referring to hell, he's giving them a vivid picture that they all know about the stench, the heat. Everything about it is awful. You're looking at all the bones and skeletons and everything else that are out there. And it's a horrid sight. When Jesus is referring to Gehenna, he's referring to the ash heap. Because after after that thing would cease to burn, the poor would rush out and start going through the ashes looking for treasures, right? Jesus doesn't just lift the poor out of the ash heap to become princes, He literally, when we think of Jesus taking on the condemnation to descending into hell, as the Apostles' Creed says, he literally goes into the picture of Gehenna and trades places with the poor. He goes to the ash heap so that those that are poor and suffering can be lifted up as princes. And so God is so generous. Think about that. He came to suffer that fate to lift those who have nothing to offer back to him. It's wildly generous, and that brings us to truth number three. If he owns all things and we can't compete with his generosity toward us, then we have to recognize that God calls upon us to be stewards of his generosity for his purposes. Everything you have, your time, your bank account, Everything you have is given to you for a purpose, and that purpose is his purpose. So Second Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Hang on to that. And God is able to bless you abundantly. Why? Why does God bless you abundantly? So that, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He doesn't bless you. And this is is hard to hear. It's hard for me to stop and think about. He doesn't give me financial security so I can sit fat, dumb, and happy with my financial security. He gives me that so that I may abound in every good work. And I remember, you know, that cheerful giver, because that's the hard part. You know, you can be guilted into giving. And there's a lot of, lot of places that will try to guilt you into giving. And if that's your heart, you're not pleasing God. I remember, I think I've told the story when we were talking about miracles, just because of the way God provided it. It really was miraculous. But Laura and I, when we were married, uh, my wallet was even emptier. And so we went out one day and we were talking about, you know, how, what do we cut? And in my heart, as a seminary student at the time, beginning seminary, in my mind was, I wonder how it would go if I mentioned to Laura that in my mind I have the idea of cutting the tithe, maybe just reducing it for a season. And before I even got to the point where I could bring up that conversation, she made it very plain that that wasn't on the table. And God really provided Why do you think God asks for a tithe? Giving, if you just do it and it's just compulsory and it's like, oh, I got to write the check. You empty it of the meaning. And tithing, offerings, whatever you're doing, when you give, it is as though you're going to the Lord and you're saying, man, this is really precious to me. You know, with this money, I could X, Y, Z. I'm putting you first. You rank higher than all of this. It's an act of worship. It's a costly one, and it's tangible, right? And so you can't go to the Lord if you're being faithful in your giving, or it'd be hard to, unless your heart's behind it, because no one else knows. The pastors here don't check. You know, we're not. We don't want to know. Nobody. Nobody knows but you, and it's a tangible way. Where you're going to God with something saying, you know what? I can say in my heart all day long that I value you more than X. I'm showing you. And here's the other side. When generosity pours out through God's people to others, guess what they see? This person sees me. This person sees their God and his mission as more valuable than all that stuff they had to give up generosity shows the world that God is more precious than the junk. But you see where it says God loves a cheerful giver? When I was in seminary and going through the stage where I was like, I don't know how I can afford to live. Like, I'm going to have to cancel TV and phone and all these other things if I'm going to make good on this obligation. And I went to my seminary professor, who's Dr. Gage, and I was annoyed. And I was like, you know, if God wants me to tithe, he should give me more. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was Totally upside-down attitude. And I, so I was annoyed and I, you know, I said, so, you know, either I give and I don't have enough and God wants me poor or, you know, I don't give and I can meet my bills, but then I'm sinning. Is that right? And he, without the attitude, and he looked at me and he says, well, Sam, right now you've got two options on how to sin. (laughs) You can either give with a begrudging heart and guess what? That's not pleasing to the Lord. You know, he's not he's not desperate for your help. He's, he's not up there going, oh, I hope I can meet the mortgage this month. Sam, come on. Or I can go and not do it. And as this next verse in Malachi, this verse, God, when he's talking about the tithe, listen to the charge he lays down on Israel, and I'll, and I'll get to what he's getting at here in a minute. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, oh, how are we robbing you? And tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And before you stop here, because people use this, the name it, claim it, prosperity guys, which I despise the prosperity gospel. Sorry if you're into that. I know this is not for you. Notice what he says there. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because the people of God are not moving. This isn't, hey, test me, be generous, and I'm going to give you a bunch of wealth. This is, test me, if my people will be generous, see how amazing your nation will become. See how ennobled, see how the poor are taken care of, how the widowed are taken care of, see how it's a just society and the foreigners are loved and all of that. Because we live in a society right now where, what did he say, less than 3% of us tithe? And we wonder why the church is increasingly irrelevant. You know, my mom, she was raised up Catholic and I, she was raised by an alcoholic father. She lived in the projects of Louisville, she was poor very poor, and she says, like, growing up, that if it were not for her local church, their family would have been a mess, but they welcomed the kids, they took care of them after school, they gave them training, they helped them with clothes, they gave them an education, they helped with her dad's rehab. The church was everything to their family, and as the church becomes, do you know that the church, by percentage ratio... Gave more during the Great Depression than we do today. We 're at the height of prosperity, more wealth than the nations ever had. We gave more during the Great Depression. Do you know that I saw the statistic today that people making 20,000 dollars a year are eight times more likely to give to their church than those making 75. Why? we 've become in love with our wealth. And we sacrifice the poor, those that are hurting, for our comfort. We do. That's a, that's a hard thing. That's me, by the way. This is something Laura and I have been talking about in recent days as I've been having to prepare this. And it's like, man, I, I don't feel like the Lord looks at me and goes, yeah, Sam, you're a faithful steward right now. Because I'm not, I'm not sacrificing I'm, I'm not loving sacrificially the way that he calls on us to love. And so what happens in that is the relevance of the church goes down. Like I was talking about, in the founding era of American history, the church was responsible for being the social safety net of society. The church was responsible for running schools and universities, hospitals, orphanages, rehab services, charities to the poor, and increasingly, who now does all of that here? The government. The government. I despise socialism. I think it's anti-biblical. I think it's evil, honestly, to trust human beings with that much power. But here's the other side of that. If under a capitalist structure where freedom and liberty exist, if the church is not caring for the poor, it's just as wicked. Because in capitalism, it's dog-eat-dog. We'll chew one another up and leave the poor and oppressed and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan behind in the wake. And that's just as detestable in the sight of God. And so now we're stuck at this. Either the church is going to stand up and say, we will do this, which begins with me. Or I can't complain when those who care about the poor say the government should. Neither one of them are good options. And because we now worship our wallets, the church doesn't have the resources to do those things. And so I, I found a couple of guys that I, that I respect a lot. I love their hearts. These are guys that aren't prosperity gospels. They're not trying to get their congregations to buy jets for them. <laughs> These are guys that have walked away from money and walked away from fame and set aside megachurch pulpits for the sake of the gospel, Francis Chan being one. Listen to what he says. It's just really, I love this guy. You know, I,
1: I grew up in a church that said, you know, you give 10 percent, period. So that's the goal. That's if you get there, you're great, you're godly. Um, so I did that. And I did it faithfully. And sometimes I would give a little bit more if I felt guilty in a sermon. And um, But then as I began to study the scriptures more, I saw, uh, I think I'm supposed to do more than that. And... Um, So I started giving a little bit more and the Lord just kept taking care of us. Um, But then the real change took place when I went to Africa the first time and, and I felt something for the people and I loved the people and it wasn't giving out of guilt. It wasn't giving out of anything more than want and love. It's like, wow, I would much rather build them a high school than buy a new truck. You know, like that would give me much more joy because these are friends of mine now. And so that's when things started to change and then when i look at it biblically, i go, yeah, and I think that's right. And I don't think it's just, God wants me to give for his glory, absolutely everything for his glory. But I, I don't see him detaching our human affections or even supernatural affections for people from our giving. I think he wants that. And I think that's the whole love piece. And that's when we just, I came home from Africa and said, uh, you know, honey, let's, let's just see how much we can give away. Let's just figure it out. Let's start selling things. Let's, let's go nuts on this. Um, because I fall in love with these people. And as we started doing that and giving more and more, the Lord just blessed us more and more. Um, I mean, crazy things where I would sense, like, God wanting me to give $50,000, you know, the next year. And I think, well, that's about what I make, you know? <laughs> like, how do you just give away? It's like, okay, Lord, help me. I want to do that then. And we were able to do it, you know? And then I was like, wow. But I think the Lord wants me to give 100000 next year. It's like, we didn't even make that, and it's just these crazy things. It's like, okay, let's just go for it, see what happens. And sure enough, we're able to do it. And then I was like, oh no, I really think the Lord wants us to give a million dollars next year. And it's just like, wait, okay, now it's being, now we're getting silly here. Okay, this is just stupid. You know, you're talking about a guy that was making thirty six grand a year, and within a couple years, really believing God saying. I want you to give away a million, and you just go, okay, God, you can do anything. And sure enough, you know, I mean, this is just stupid. This is just ridiculous. Anyone that would follow and look at my life and and see what God said and then see the results and go, ah, it's just coincidence. It, it's just ridiculous. Um, so God is always blessed when I've given, and the more faith and the I've just getting more and more enjoyment out of it. Um, so I just do it more and more. And, and I'm not saying I can't be tempted um, by that because I can be tempted in any area. And so knowing that, what we did was we we gave over the rights of crazy love to a, a charity, a charitable gift fund. So this way I knew I can't even touch it if I wanted to, just in case I change my mind later and get greedy and want to, you know, it was like, let's just hand it over. So once I sign it, I don't have to be tempted by it and yet we have control over it to give it to anyone we want, which is an absolute blast. Or any charity one. We can't just write a check to my mom. Um, it uh, has to go to a charity, charity. So it's just its a blast to just go, oh, they need a hospital there?
0: Like No way! You know, it's just so fun. That idea that the desire is when God blesses you, to be excited, not because you have a blessing, but because you get to be a blessing. That you're, you're a channel. Laura, my wife, uses this. You're not made to be a bucket. You're made to be a pipe, you know, that God pours blessings into so that you can deliver them down the line. And that's true. And the Bible's very clear on that. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace and its various forms. And so in the Bible, he offers this quartet, really, of people in need of mercy. You see the widows, you see orphans, the poor, and the stranger, the foreigner, the alien. And those are again and again. But listen, listen, he puts them here. This is what the Lord Almighty has said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, or the poor. Why do you think those four are lifted up why do they get special recognition they're vulnerable yeah the poor don't have access to to buy the best defense or house or luxury right the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner, they're all very vulnerable. That's the perfect word. And God is saying, if you're secure, if I have blessed you to where you're living in security, then you need to be my hands and feet to care and make sure that the vulnerable are protected and lifted up and blessed. You are my agent. When the poor are out there praying, you are his answer. You ever thought about that? You are the amen to some of these people's prayers if you have means. Do not be afraid, little flock. This is Jesus. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So he starts by saying, what more do you want? <laughs> like is there, is there any further generosity that you could ask for? He's given you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves. Buy purses for yourselves. That won't wear out. So what you put your treasure in, get one that won't wear out. What is that one? It's, it's the kingdom. And put your put your savings, put your your money, your resources in that. It will not wear out. Jesus says, you know, don't store up treasure. Where? Here. Where rust destroys, moth eats. But store up your treasures where? In heaven. Make that your purse. Where it never fails, where no thief comes, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that brings you to truth four. The Bible repeatedly links our future reward or judgment to our level of generosity in this life. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. If you have authentic faith in Christ, if you trust him, this is not about earning your salvation, but this is saying that if you have authentic faith you will be generous. If you understand what has been given to you and you authentically believe what and what has been given to you, it will be impossible for you not to be generous. That's what the scriptures teach. It's like Martin Luther said, yes, you're saved by faith alone, but that faith never remains alone. It produces things. And so here you go. Matthew 6. This is our passage for this Sunday actually. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. So if you're announcing what a great guy you are to everybody all the time, okay, enjoy that. But if not, there is a reward for you. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you can give in secret. That means your heart, the motive behind it is purely the Lord. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So there's a reward for that. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake, who, who says, hey, here I am, take all of me, I'm all in, use me however you want, they will find their life. Do you know when Jesus offers up the most vivid descriptions of judgment? The ones that make you go, ooh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The rich man begging for just a drop of water in hell. And all of those stories where God, Jesus, in the flesh, is talking about these not so pleasant pictures. You know what he's responding to? Those who fail to take care of the poor, the sheep and the goats. One of the most famous passages on judgment. And what's it about? What's at the heart of this? What is he talking about in this passage? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And Jesus, when he's giving this, when he's talking about who they are, It's not doctrine. It's not denomination. It's not any of that stuff. What is it? Then the king will say to those on his right, these are the sheep, the ones that are going to the good place. Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me and all the sheep are dumbfounded. The righteous answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, Jesus will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. You who are accursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they're going to say, when did we not do that? And what does he say? Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do for me. What do you make of this? Do you feel the gravity of Jesus' words there? Because what he's saying is if you have authentic faith, it is a non-negotiable that that authentic faith manifests itself in a concern for the vulnerable. This is God saying, I so identify with that poor widow who spends her night wondering if she's going to be able to feed her son, and she's offering up prayers, that if you were to take care of her, man, it would be like you were doing it for me. If I went on a mission trip to Haiti, and I left Laura and my four kids behind, and I was over there in a region of the mountains where there's no phones, no cell service, no nothing, and our house burned down and everything in it, All the clothes, all the money, all the medicine, everything burned down. And I got back from Haiti. And I pulled up into my driveway and I saw that it was in shambles. And my kids were hungry, running around naked. And Laura's devastated and crying to herself. Do you... Do you get how angry I would be at you? Do you get that? Do you know how much I love Laura? Do you know how much I love my kids? Like, this is the heart of God who's saying, man, if if you would take care of them, it's worth more than if you did it for me. And here God is looking at his bride here on earth, his precious children, and this is convicting, man, because, and you can't save everybody. Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. But do you have that heart of generosity that seeks to lift up those that are without? But imagine if I came home and you'd gone to great expense to clothe them and to take care of them and comfort her and help her with medicine and get you know finances in order and take her to work and do all the. Do you know how grateful I would be to you? And that needs to be The heart behind generosity. The Lord is not just looking at the poor and the widow and saying, oh, it would be a nice moral system if you took care of those people. He's looking at his sons, his daughters, his bride saying, they're in need. What are you doing? Help them. God does not judge a man based on what he gives away but on what he keeps. And you see this in the scriptures. So like for example, he looks up, he sees a rich man putting his gifts into the temple treasury and he goes, eh. All right. But then he sees a poor widow and he puts in, she puts in two very small copper coins. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Why? He says, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, she put in all that she had to live on. So what is Jesus saying? I'm making my evaluation, not on what you give, but on what you keep. The question is not how much of my money should I give to God, but rather how much of God's money should I keep for now? When we give to the Lord's work, we should give with the belief that all that we have belongs to God and with a commitment that we will use all of it as he wants. Let him be your accountant and see how much more fulfilling life is when you live a life of generosity as a pipe, not a bucket.